And we are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the third webinar in our July series titled Building Trust in Connected Learning Environments. I'm Anna Smith, and as of this next week, I'm a postdoctoral fellow in writing and contemporary composition at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And I'm also the co-founder of, of the hashtag literacies chat on Twitter. Um, and from that, you could infer why it is that I'm very interested to talk to these folks today um, and, um, and why I'm thrilled to host the conversation. So throughout the month, you can join us here on Connected Learning TV as we explore some of the issues and recommendations from the recent Aspen Task Force on Learning and the Internet Report um, that's called Learner at the Center of a, a Networked World. And today we'll be chatting specifically about um, one of these items in the report, socio-emotional literacies and digital citizenship best practices. And more specifically, the, meaning um, the ways to encourage multi-directional trust or trust that goes from platforms to people, and ways um, to empower learners of all ages to use learning resources confidently, effectively, and safely. But before we dive into our chat, uh, let's go over a couple of quick details. Uh, for those of you watching live right now, uh, we welcome your comments and questions, either via the Twitter hashtag DMLTrust or the hashtag ConnectedLearning, or via Google Plus, the Google Plus event page. And we'll do our best to address the questions that you have here during the Google Hangout. And we're also chatting through the month on the Connected Learning Google Plus community and using the same DMLTrust hashtag on Google Plus. So I hope that you will join with us. Um, I'd like to give each of our guests a, a chance to briefly introduce themselves. Um, these are people that, that I have been following um, for several years, so I'm excited to get to know each of them, and I hope that you are as well. Um, so, Anne, why don't you start for us? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Anne Collier, and I am co-director of ConnectSafely.org, and I blog at NetFamilyNews.org. And I had the privilege of being on this recent um, Aspen Task Force for Learning and the Internet, and um, and really enjoyed um, talking a lot about the literacies of the digital age during our meetings throughout the year. And um, I'm very proud of our report, and hope that um, you know everybody will have a chance to read our recommendations and and maybe even act on them with our 26 action steps. <laughs> Jay. I am I'm Jay Davis. I am a doctoral student and teaching fellow at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I am the program coordinator at Haystack for the DML Trust Challenge, um, which has partnered with Connected Learning TV to produce this webinar series. Um, the Trust Challenge is offering $1.2 million in awards for people who can come up with solutions to enable trust online through various tools that are scalable um, and interoperable. Um, you can find out more at dmlcompetition.net. Janelle. Okay. Hi, I'm Janelle Bentz, and I am a global issues facilitator at New Tech High at Coppell. What that means is I'm in a blended humanities class. I teach the English one side, and I have a world geography slash um, pre-AP human geography um, teacher in the same class. Um, we are a one-to-one -one campus, and we make media all the time, um, and we do social media all the time for our discussions and things like that. So I'm excited to be here. Cool. And Jesse. 
Yeah, hi. Hi, I'm Jesse Daniels, and it's nice to talk with you all. This is exciting, and welcome to everybody that's joining us now and in the future. Um, I'm a professor at CUNY in New York City, and I'm a scholar of race and racism, and through that work, uh, it's race and racism online specifically, and through that work I've been very interested in social justice, most, re most recently through a project called Just Publics at 365, and that project is intended to get scholarship into the public sphere around social justice issues, and in that we did a uh, what we called a participatory open online course, a poop rather than a MOOC, that was situated in East Harlem, which is actually where I'm sitting today at our campus in East Harlem. So we learned a lot there, I think, about trust and uh, citizenship and all those sorts of things we're talking about today. That's my neighborhood, Jesse. So, oh. <laughs> so I know about your pook right there in my neighborhood. Um, so uh, I hope that we'll have, I think that we'll have a list of, of all these great projects that everyone's been involved with and the links that you mentioned. And we'll make sure that those are available to, um, in, um, on Connected Learning TV in our webinar. Um, and so thinking about the work that you do, um, how is it that you think about di digital citizenship and then how does that show up um, in the work that you do? And, and we can take a response from any of you to begin with, and we don't have to go in order each time. What do you think? Well, I'll jump in. Um, I, I had the, uh, I was on a, another task force a few years ago. I was asked to co-chair the Online Safety and Technology Working Group, which brought together NGOs and um, industry and experts in civil liberties and government and all of that. And it, it was a very, very diverse task force. And one of our many recommendations to Congress in 2010 was, you know, universal digital citizenship instruction as well as literacy instruction in, um, in schools pre-K through 12 throughout the country. Um, and, you know, but since then, I've thought a lot about digital citizenship and, and it's kind of interesting that it didn't come up in the Aspen Task Force discussion a whole lot and um, I think it would be good for us to use, apply our media literacy and think critically a little bit about digital citizenship. Um, first of all, you know, I know that we have some curricula out there and um, people are teaching it but I think that by its very definition, um, it has to be iterative. It has to be crowdsourced or citizen-sourced. And we're also at the very formative stages of the digital age, right? So digital citizenship is in its infancy, and I don't think we can teach it in a top-down kind of way. That's dictating it, right? That's dictatorship. So it's really more, I would propose, a practice and a, and a disposition. And, and I think there are affordances of it. I think there are elements of it, you know, participation or civic engagement, norms of behavior, rights and responsibilities, a sense of belonging. Um, I think in our society we've focused way too much on norms of behavior. We sort of, in, in this reductionist way, we think of it kind of as, I don't know, online safety rebranded or, you know, or a kind of classroom management, um, a way to control. And I think it's, 
we have to rethink it because I think it's not going to be very a very attractive concept to the citizens and um, so that that that's what I would throw out there that we really need to kind of ask the citizens to participate in this discussion Um, I guess building off of that, um, one of the things that's important for me, especially in terms of connected learning in classroom spaces, um, is allowing students to take the position of power. Um, I joke with my students a lot just because they've gone through so many years of formal education by the time they're taking my upper division classes. Um, I have a chair and I call it the chair of power and whoever gets to sit in the chair is in control of the classroom. And there will be times where they get to sit in the chair of power and give a presentation or there will be times where the chair of power doesn't matter because there's other things happening in the digital spaces. And for me, I think that trusting the students to be able to take possession of that chair and take possession of the other spaces they have access to and lead those spaces. Um, is how I think of digital citizenship. It's sort of changing the power dynamics in a way where everybody's able to speak up in a way that wasn't necessarily possible in the in the past. So. I think um, I think that all of this is true. I think that um, being in the classroom and seeing the learners work with one another, since we're also um, a project-based learning school, so we do projects all the time and we work collaboratively and change out groups and things like that. Um, so giving the power to the learners and kind of crowdsourcing well you know what does does digital citizenship look like in my more immediate working group community um, is a must and one of the ways that we do that is that each time we start a new project and we get into our groups um, the learners create social contracts and within that um, learners are very very transparent as far as you know what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are or areas of growth many of them you know admit that hey I, I get um, a little distracted here um, as far as maybe I'm on social media but not using it for academic purposes um, maybe that's something that you guys can kinda help me out on and let's give steps to kind of you know be as effective collaborators as we can and so they drop these social contracts within their more immediate groups and it's a way for them to learn digital citizenship and what that looks like within their more um, immediate network and it's something that they see changes and will have to change as far as what their role is in helping each other out to grow and develop in becoming a um, digital citizen. So that's just one of the ways that we do it in our class. Yeah, I guess the, for me the whole concept of digital citizenship really relates to civic engagement and sort of yeah. ha and, and to social justice, you know, how we're defining that. And I think for, for us, or I'll just speak for me, when, when we created the the course here in East Harlem, part of what was so challenging about trying to get people um, invested in, you know, if we want to call it an idea of digital citizenship, was when we had people in different institutional contexts, right? So we had some people who had an official affiliation with CUNY in some way, either as students or faculty, but were officially enrolled. And then we had a whole host of other learners who were not affiliated with any institution. You know, they lived in the neighborhood or they were activists in the neighborhood. And, and those kinds of differences really made a difference in how invested people were in the course. And I, I mean, we never came to a good solution, I don't think, about how to mediate those really very real 
you know, differences in institutional power uh, between people. So I'd be interested, maybe Janelle, your experience um, speaks to that. You've already figured that out, but we, we weren't able to <laughs> in our 15 weeks. Do you mind if I just um, uh, voice something that popped into my head while you were introducing yourself, Jesse? It, it's really your kind of, your work is at the intersection of literacy and citizenship because in thinking a great deal and working in the area of social justice, you are employing, you know, social literacy skills, media literacy skills, and you know, I guess we're all kind of, if there's anything digital involved, we're, we're employing digital literacy skills. Mm. Um, and then the, you know, the, the citizenship part, that, you know, yeah. how do we, how do we, um, how how to be citizens, you know, in in the framework of social justice, yeah. as well as digital environments, is yeah. a very exciting question yeah. to me. It, it is to me too, and it's really difficult. I think. Sorry, Janelle. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I I love this discussion because um, the past two years, my classroom has been in, involved with um, KQEDs Do Now um, work and. It speaks exactly to what you're talking about. Um, it is all about civic engagement and what that looks like in the digital age and how different it is. And to see the learners grapple with um, their digital identity and representations and how to express themselves and form, um, and I'll give you a little background, but is, is really fascinating. So if you're not familiar with the KQED Do Now work, um, there is a... Um, topic that's brought up, a current event that's brought up every week, and there's a prompt, and there's there are resources. KQED is um, the public media um, source in, in the Bay Area. And so there are sources, some may be biased in one way and another, and um, also uh, more balanced viewpoint, but there are, all the learners are able to view all of this, um, all of the uh, resources and research there, um, and then we ask them to respond to the prompt. And um, it's great for us because uh, my school is in an affluent area, um, pretty homogeneous, uh, not not real diverse. It's getting more diverse. Um, so to be able to connect with over 100 schools now across the nation and hear the differing viewpoints is phenomenal. And I can't, I mean, with every topic, there is a learner who's in front of, like, we do it on discussion board and then also on Twitter. Um, but there's always someone in each class who's like, whoa, what did this person just say? Really? Really? And seeing them grapple with, okay, I, I want, like my initial instinct is to come back with just, I'm kind of angry at this person's response. But then to see them take two steps back and realize that that anger is not going to get the discussion developing any further. And then also realizing that they don't want to misrepresent themselves and realizing that that can cut the conversation off at the knees and just stop, you know, a rich Really, under, really rich understanding um, has been really, really um, important and meaningful for these kids. I mean, I, I one such example I remember it was um, the topic on Martin Luther King, and the question prompt was something like, "If Martin Luther King were alive today, would he be proud? Um, would there be progress um, in in civil rights and equality?" And um, one learner from a different school had said. Um, Basically, he had used uh, a white, uh, a source from a white supremacist, uh, yeah, uh, website, and 
yeah, there was evidence, but um, when our, several of our learners were just like, really? Really? And they're talking about bias of the sources. They're talking about, let's look at, you know, let's look at where that came from. Let's talk about where you got your um, opinion from. And here are my opinions from XYZ sources. You know, this may be a little bit biased, but this is like a non-biased source. So I think that definitely um, teaching and giving the opportunities to our kids to be able to talk about these tough discussions and saying, hey, no, slow down. Remember, yes, we want you to have an opinion, but we want to be able to continue to be informed and continue to be educated. So, so I'm really excited that we got this discussion of civic engagement and social justice into the talk. Great. Um, I think for the challenge, the idea of civic engagement and social justice are extremely important because when you start thinking about tools that are supposed to change how students and learners trust things online, um, there is an inherent risk. Like, I mean, trust implies that there's a risk that's happening. Um, and one of the places that we can look to to see what that risk looked like before is in social justice movements and activist movements and civic engagement move movements. Um, and I think it's one of the few places where you can really start to map trust in the digital onto, um, or we can start mapping trust from old trust before the digital onto digital trust in a really interesting way um, with the added layer of anonymity and data issues, obviously. Um, but yeah, I'm also happy this conversation is happening. That's great. So two things that, that I'm hearing so far in our conversation. Um, one is this idea that moving from citizenship being the fancy word for in schools, behavior control, and online safety, <laughs> right? It's our, our code word for those things. Um, to this idea that citizenship is um, another, that might be code word for engagement. Um, and also, it sounds like to me, something around both citizenship being an awareness of the social and relational powers that are at play between people, um, both their personal and socially um, around that, and then also impacting those relations um, and doing that both in terms of personally what I do online, right, whether I'm paying attention in my academic space or not, if I'm being distracted by things, as well as in socially within the groups I'm in. And so, um, with, so that's one trend I'm hearing us talk about, and it's a much messier place to be than the old, you know, it's control and safety. Um, and, and then, so it's interesting, so one, one thing I'm interested in talking about is, well, what happens to our conversations around trust in these messier, messier definitions, what we mean by de um, citizenship. And the other trend that I'm, that I'm hearing, and I don't know if you're all hearing this, is this idea that, um, that a community member may not be an engaged citizen, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting to, thing to, to go to. But at the same time, I'm kind of pushing back because what 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 are we saying is the difference between someone who's in a community and part of a community, and and then not being an engaged citizen? And I'm wondering if if that's around if if what makes you an engaged citizen is that you ha you share an interest or you care about the same topic I do. Um, if you're part of, like what Jay was just talking about, a particular movement, um, or what it, what moves somebody from being just a community member to being, um, a, you know, a citizen and an engaged citizen, um, 
that's a, and I'm sure that's, those are the tensions that um, Jesse was talking about in, in terms of East Harlem in particular um, and the Pook, but you know, or, um, I'm interested to talk about either one of those things. Trust in this messier definition of citizenship and then also digital citizenship and then also this idea of you know, where's the line around shared interests um, when we're talking about engagement. I think we have to be really careful about um, requiring engagement. You know, I, the, the old-fashioned term for citizenship, or the old-fashioned definition, you know, and that's kind of all over the place too, but not every citizen of a country is an engaged citizen or we're engaged at different points in our lives. We care more, at, you know, about who we vote for in certain elections. And so um, it may be an imposition to require constant activism or constant engagement um, and and I think you know that's kind of where um, in effect social literacy and social justice come into play because we have to be aware of the needs and interests of those around us and sometimes it may be non-engagement just yeah, a thought. I, I agree um, I'm one of the big giant advocates for lurking in these spaces where we see this really active community place happening um, because I don't, I feel very uncomfortable expecting everybody to engage because there are risks for different people when they engage in different projects. Um, but everybody in the digital space, if it's public, is able to lurk in those spaces and take advantage of the things that are happening there. Um, so I, I think that part of digital citizenship is the allowing of lurking and peeking in from people who might not be there for the long haul or might just be dropping by or who might have real risks to themselves if they were to engage. I think also, though, um, at least when you're starting and especially when kids are new to using social media um, and becoming civically engaged. Um, I know when we begin the year, we always make sure that kids are participating because otherwise they really don't get that practice. Does that make sense? So um, even if it's not an opinion that we're asking them to marry and completely like, no, this is this is what it is and I'm passionate about it. If it's if it's a prompt that they're not really sure about, they can voice that opinion and say, well this is why I am uncertain and you know, incite the reasons why. And and that's okay. But if we don't I know like in my classroom I would have kids who would just sit back and not not engage or not even read at some point, you know, some of those sources. And and Thankfully, um, KQED does a great job of bringing in various, various topics. So there's at least been one where um, kids can really become passionate and not only um, participate in the discussion, but also create various media to support their um, their opinions and, and thoughts. Um, but I think that, you know, it is something that we need to teach. And in order for them to teach, um, I do think that there's value in lurking, but at some point we need to see, well, how are you going to participate? What does that participation look like? And kind of really give them opportunities where they feel safe enough and hopefully find topics that they will engage in so we can see them participate so they have a chance. So I know it's both no, sides. I, it's both sides. <laughs> and I completely agree. I have... Um, I have a student story that kind of touches on this. I had a student in my class who never spoke. Um, she didn't speak for the first half of the semester. Um, she gave her presentation right in the middle of the semester, and she was one of the smartest people in the class. 
and I talked to her after um, I put her at the center of her, her learning environment, like the Aspen Task Force says to do. Um, I got her enrolled in one of my other classes, and she continued to not talk into her final presentation, which was absolutely amazing. It was a Cengage website that was based off of one conversation we had in class where somebody had said that all the black students in class are here because of affirmative action, um, and she was a black female student. Um, when I had her in my next class, she was again not talking, but one day um, she had come from a class where they were learning about the history of feminism, and she was extremely upset. Um, she said they had no place for me in that conversation. It was her and another student that were in the class together. And I told her she needs to speak up, and it's okay for her to speak up. And she said, nobody's ever told me it's okay for me to talk. I thought it wasn't okay. Um, so when those types of things happen, I'm totally fine with her lurking, but it also means that I have to create a space for her to engage in a way that she's comfortable until I can push her out, which I eventually was able to do. Like at the end of the first class where the affirmative action thing happened, she said, I'm not going to talk to you, but here's my website about the history of African Americans in education. Um, for the second class, it was her working on herself and being more confident in herself, and the project at the end of that class was creating a website of herself that represents herself, um, and it did require her to engage on social media. She signed an agreement to do that, um, but I think that in situations like that, and I mean, she's not the only student I've had that's been in that situation lurking, especially with me in the front of the classroom, is an extremely powerful tool. And the engagement might not be evident, but I completely understand the risk. And if they had said, if she had said, no, I'm not comfortable participating, that's something that I would have to work around, which I have had to do for students, and that's absolutely fine. Which is why social literacy is so important, social-emotional learning, being able to perceive those needs in a student or in a teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to sort of, if I could, go back a little bit to the other issue that Anna was raising about the murkiness of trust in these um, mm -hmm. in these new um, contexts. And I think that in some ways this relates um, to something that Janelle was saying earlier about the the student who had uh, brought in the Martin Luther King site with some shaky references and that sort of thing. And that's actually, it's probably the... I'm guessing that it's probably the site that I've done some research on uh, that I refer to as a cloak site. It appears to be a tribute site to Dr. King, but it's in mm -hmm. fact hosted by white supremacists, and you've probably all run across it at some point. Um, but I asked young people, uh, 15 to 19, what their impression was of that site when they went to it, and mostly what I found was that they were uh, confused by it. You know, they, they sort of picked up on the bad graphic design and and the, you know, if things are flashing, you know, it's sort of that sort of thing about it. But in terms of the text, they were um, they weren't sure what to make of it, and that was a harder thing for them to discern. Um, until I talked to one young person who really um, was looking at a slightly different site, but a sa the same kind of cloak site, and she said, "Well, I, I I see that this says that slavery wasn't so bad, and I know that it was, and so I don't trust it." So from my perspective, I mean, that's what I refer to as racial literacy, right? She had this knowledge about racial inequality from someplace else, and she used it to evaluate and to decide if she was going to trust this website or not. And that's the kind of critical thinking about social justice that's so important in what Jade was just saying. You know, I mean, she's acknowledging the kind of social justice issues that the student has to deal with, and if we don't bring those into classroom discussions, um, then 
that it's going to be harder to create that kind of trust, both in terms of assessing, um, you know, what students are looking at online, and in terms of, you know, trusting the instructor or trusting um, other students to speak out in the classroom. So I just think that that piece of it needs to be part of the conversation as well. Yeah, it might be um, it might be a good movement right now then to go to this to this question that that today's um, webinar is about. Um, what the Aspen Task Force called socio-emotional, um, I can't even say it, socio-emotional <laughs> literacies. Um, and so I'm personally very interested in seeing how the, the and thinking about how people are thinking about literacies um, and what, what does it mean, what do socio-emotional literacies mean? Um, I'm wondering, Jesse, if it, it is somewhat of a code word for critical um, analysis or critical, right, taking mm. a critical lens, um, social justice, like what do we mean um, what is entailed there, and then what does that look like in the different work that you've been doing at your projects? What are the social yeah. emotional literacies that we, we want to think about? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm very focused on, uh, on, on race and racism in the U.S. As a, as a particular kind of literacy, actually. I think that students don't learn enough about the history of race and racism in the U.S. Uh, in the K-12 through curriculum. And the only time that they learn it in college is if they sign up for uh, a black studies or African-American studies class, usually. I mean, um, for example, the history of lynching is just not told um, mm -hmm. in most of K-12, through um, uh, you know, uh, curricula. Um, so, you know, several people mentioned uh, just in the sidebar about Howard Rheingold's uh, wonderful um, heard a phrase actually from Ernest Hemingway about crap detection and that's that's absolutely kind of the umbrella for what I'm talking about but I'm actually talking about something very specific which is about understanding uh, racism <laughs> and and recognizing it when we when it's evident mm -hmm. you know so so understanding uh, that information isn't neutral um, and that it's not um, uh, you know this we have I think in digital culture, this notion that information wants to be free and that it's value-free, um, and I think it's simply not the case, and that's certainly um, m what my research suggests. Well, Anna, you asked about you know what those social emotional literacies are, um, and I, I should just tell everybody about this fantastic resource in Chicago, the you know Center for uh, I forget I get it's Castle. Um, the Center for Academic and Social Success or something, social-emotional learning. Anyway, casel.org. And it, there are really five social competencies. It's quite simple. And in fact, this is built into the academic standards statewide in the state of Illinois and should be in every state in the country, I feel very strongly. Um, but the five social competencies are self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, social skills, and responsible decision-making. And um, there's a really nice pie chart there that I can um, send everybody a link to. But these are, and that you know, they're expanded upon in the website, and then Castle um, points to all evidence-based curricula teaching SEL in this country. So um, that's a really great resource for educators. But um, what we realized, just to tell a quick little story, and I'm kind of losing power fast, so I may have to leave early. Um, mm -hmm. 
Dana Boyd asked um, a group of us, uh, Mia Doches at Committee for Children in Seattle, Sue Swearer at University of Nebraska, and myself and Lisa Jones at the University of New Hampshire Crimes Against Children Research Center to, to form a little curriculum group to help launch the Born This Way Foundation back in we started back in late 2011 and we put together some materials and I learned so much from my colleagues and one of the things, one of the big epiphanies that we had in our collaboration that I'd love to put out there for everybody to consider is that um, you know, in the midst of this moral panic around cyberbullying and, and bullying that we've had in this country, um, you know, there's a lot of fear around social aggression and harassment online. And um, what we realized is that the, the, the major part of bullying prevention um, is social emotional learning. That we could really put a serious dent into um, workplace bullying, you know, grown-up bullying, kid bullying, it's not a kid thing, but we could really, and we know that, that social aggression is the you know the the biggest risk online. That's from a major lit review that was done at by you know by the the three task forces ago at the Berkman Center. Mm -hmm. So if we could if we could get SEL into every school in this country, we would really and, and we would really go far in in solving a, and or helping to solve a major problem that that is really a global problem and that. Social emotional learning, when you think about it, and it's extraordinary that we've left it out. We talk about digital literacy and media literacy, but this is a social media environment that we're all functioning in, a, a, a huge proportion of the population of this planet. And if we don't develop social literacy, we really can't function well, we can't function effectively and successfully online without social emotional learning. So it's this is just a major appeal and it was thrilling to see that the Aspen Task Force was making it, you know, kind of a three-legged stool, right? You can't have digital literacy without media and social literacy or any of the other legs. It's a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. Well great, so we've had one of our other guests be able to join us. Emily's with us. Um, we're going to let her introduce herself, and I think it'd be interesting, Emily, for you, um, if if you don't mind, if something comes to your mind about this, is about just thinking about your own learning and what it, what kind of learning you've done in terms of um, who you are in our social world and and how you interact with people online. Um, what kind of things have you learned over this last year or so? Um, I'd be really interested in hearing about that as well. After you introduce yourself and tell us who you are and, <laughs> and where you are, and welcome. Okay, um, I'm actually one of Ms. Benson's students from last year, um, so I obviously live in Coppell and go to New Tech. Um, one thing I've noticed on social media is we did do nows from the KQED. Uh, we, we actually, I noticed a lot on there is that um, a lot of people will offend each other. I remember one topic was um, abortion, and I was reading through some of the comments and everything, and when one person would state their opinion, there would be someone else who came along and was just like, your opinion is wrong, and every, like, they would just be so, like, rude to each other. And I thought that was, like, really, I don't know how to describe how I felt, but it was like, when I would see those comments, you would, I would think, well, it doesn't matter 
like they were just bullying each other because they had their own opinion, and I thought that was completely wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, one of the projects that I've been working on um, over the last several years is with a group um, here, and we have a closed social network with sites from around the world. So we have a site um, in uh, Tokyo, and we have a site in South Africa, and we have a site in um, the Netherlands, and in Oakland, and I'm in New York. Hi, Emily. I'm Anna. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and in that social, in in within that, even a closed social network, there was say, still some of that going back and forth around. Um, dissing people for whatever reason, you know, or or coming on to them for whatever reason, or like a, a lot of things that, that socially, in a, if we were all in the same room looking at each other, people would, would definitely go, oh, that's not typical of what we do when we're sitting in a room together. Um, but at the same time, people would respond, like third parties would respond sometimes and say, hey, it's not cool. You know, like, that's not how we do it here, or that's not how we do it in this chat, or that's not how... I, you know, I want to do that, and some we'd have some of the third-party um, voices come in. So it was really a social no negotiation, not just an interaction between two people. And I'm wondering if you've seen any of that happen in this more open um, KQAD um, community or other communities, even just online. Like if you have Instagram or if you have, you know, Twitter. Like what? What? How do you see that happening? I wonder if it is happening. I remember a couple years ago when I was in eighth grade, we had um, Coppell and Alan are big rivals in football and everything, mm -hmm. and Alan beat us in, when I was in eighth grade, and so um, we ran out onto the field after the game. I can't remember exactly what happened because I didn't stay the entire time, but I remember this one girl from Alan had posted a picture and said some pretty bad stuff about Coppell, and everyone on Coppell started commenting and was like, you can't do this, and blah, 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 and... Um, a lot of people probably don't know about this, but Jacob Logan was one of our football players. He uh, died cliff jumping, and so what the Allen people did is they brought Jacob Logan into it and then blamed everything on us, and there was about five to 6,000 comments of us, Coppell, and Allen arguing with each other. And so I, I actually did comment, and I said, if I, all I did was say, could you please take this picture down? It isn't doing anything, but... Um, causing more drama. Alan and Coppell are rivals in football and every other sport, and that's okay. That's how this works and everything. But telling us that we're dumb and stuff like that, because there was many, many comments about how, like, they would start talking about our education and our way of learning and everything, and they started even dissing New Tech. Even though I didn't go to New Tech at this time, they started dissing it, and I was just kind of like, okay, they would, like, make fun of our learning and everything, and I just thought it was wrong. I commented, and I said, just take this picture down, and all it is doing is causing more drama, and then I had a bunch of comment, people comment and respond back to me and just say mean stuff, and I just ignored it. I, like, blocked them all on Instagram, and I was like, whatever. Hmm. Interesting. That's cool. major social literacy and digital literacy, Emily. That's brilliant. You were being literacy. an upstander. <laughs> I think that um, I, one of the, and this is kind of going back to um, Jesse's um, discussion about racism, things like that, and what does racism look like, and and a lot of times, um, like Emily and I have talked about this too, uh, sometimes it's it's inadvertent and it's not, um, it's just, you know, lack of awareness. I just, I remember, and this goes back to the Martin Luther King topic again, um, one, of, one of the um, participants in the discussion board said um, something like, oh, I think it's, you know, I think Martin Luther King would be proud because um, people from different races now don't get teased because they're different. 
and which is wow, such an understatement. And um, one of our learners was just like, um, I, I think we need to take a moment to clarify and understand that um, they were not teased <laughs> that and just listed like eight different sources of um, bigotry and hate crimes and things like that and saying, you know, we need to be careful when we're talking about this and, you know, honor the things that have happened and figure out and, and talk about it how it was. Let's not sugarcoat it. Let's talk about it and, you know, let's just have a deeper understanding of what this was and realize that it was not teasing, that this was a huge thing that we need to continue to improve on and be vigilant. And I think that just that, that opportunity to um, be able to speak to one another and correct on a social, you know, on a social level, um, but doing it diplomatically, doing it in an informed way, um, having evidence to say, you know, just like Emily said, it's one thing to have an opinion, but it's another thing to say, this is my opinion and this is why, um, and then being able to continue that discussion is so important. So, just another instance of yes. correcting itself. Mm -hmm. um, I think Emily's discussion brings up a really interesting thing that we haven't touched on yet, and that is how systems affordances enable us to trust them, especially on a social and emotional level. Like, what does it mean that in a short succession of time people can post 6,000 comments? What would happen if you were to limit the comments? And what type of um, abilities are built into these tools that enable people to be safe and not be bullied, especially when we start thinking about it in terms of learning environments. We don't want our learners to have to go through that 6,000 comments of horror if we can avoid it at all costs, um, but sometimes it happens. So just throwing that out there is something to talk about. That's great. Jade, can you say more about, um, the, you bring up this idea of systems. Um, so there's interpersonal trust you know, between, between mm -hmm. particular people, and then there's this, this trust that um, system trust or trust in the in the environment and yeah. kind of a bigger picture trust and um, I'm interested to hear more thoughts on that and then anyone else too. Um, I think that more often than not when you talk to people about the tools or the systems or the sites that they're using we tend to personify them a lot of in a lot of ways we have emotional connections to them um, there was this great documentary a few years ago from the BBC on technology and they talked about the companies and like showed the people that represented them. One company was an old man, one was a young hip guy. Um, and you still see that. So when we think about the systems, we think about them through only our social interaction and not necessarily the stuff that's happening in the background, the things that are written into the code, um, the things that contain that environment and limit it to do what it does. Like Instagram is for photo sharing, Twitter is for 140 characters or less. Um, Facebook is for a timeline feature. You could do all sorts of stuff there, but it's blocked behind doors depending on your security settings. Um, and we just trust these things without looking at the code or understanding the code. Um, I know this weekend I was on a semi-Twitter rant about um, the slave master language that's written into a lot of code programs. Um, it started a very interesting discussion and as much as slave master is also in engineering and apparently it's also something that's in mechanics. Um, and we tend not to think about the effect that will have on students as we're telling them go and do this thing, it's going to be great. And then all of a sudden I'm in the slave master context, what do I do with that? Um, but these are the types of things that happen in systems that we assume we can trust that suddenly might become untrustworthy just because of the way that they're written or the way that we're forced to engage in them. I think um, in, in this 
world, things are getting more and more distributed, right? There, there, there's powers getting distributed, responsibilities getting distributed, control is getting distributed, regulation. Um, and I think, in, in effect, trust needs to be distributed too. That, you know, there, there are things that you write into the code that create um, a better sense of community. In, there are things that, that game designers can do to create an environment that is more, that affords trust better. Um, so there, there's, there's sort of engineering kind of code and then there's, there are codes of behavior, right? And, you know, one, one form is social norms. Um, you know, we have thousands of years of social norms development in, in, on this planet, but we have this new kind of environment called a digital environment that, um, where we think it's kind of somehow separate or not behavioral or not social, but, or, or people of my generation anyway, when, when in fact it's highly social, highly behavioral, content is behavioral now. And so we, we've only just begun transferring um, our thousands of years of social norms development into digital spaces and they are protective. They make things go better. They cause people to treat each other a certain way and it's happening. You know, when I asked a teenager whether people at his high school engaged in sexting, he said, no, no way. Nice people don't, well, they say, no way, nice people don't distribute other people's sexing photos, right? That's a social norm, right? And so it's an outlier or a marginal or an angry person who would do that to somebody. That's a protective social norm that, and you know, we really don't give enough credence to the power of social norms in digital spaces yet. So I would put that out there that, that we, that's how we build trust, online, offline, there are a lot of different mechanisms, whether it's community moderators behind the scenes in a virtual world, and it's the systems that they use, it's the, you know, the, the um, terms of service, and then it's just the people in that community and the norms that they have as community members. Those are just some of the mechanisms, I think. Yeah, I was just going to jump in with a couple of um, things that I read online just today. There's a... a a nice sort of fluffy article by uh, Chris Plant on the affordances of Twitter versus Instagram. He says, quit Twitter before you're hard and quit Instagram before you're soft. Um, and he, he sort of compares Twitter to New York City, how, you know, it's sort of vast and interesting and diverse, but, you know, there, there are unpleasant characters around to make it sometimes a rough and tumble kind of experience. And then he contrasted it with Instagram, right, where everybody's having beautiful sunsets and delicious meals, and right. And he said, you know, he compares it to Northern California. You should you should move before you're too soft. Um, and and then there was an, an academic article, a, a peer-reviewed article that came through my feed this morning as well about um, what did they call it? Uh, User-generated racism on YouTube, and sort of saying that you know there are many possibilities for the way that people can participate on YouTube, but in fact, what people end up doing is regenerating these uh, stereotypes, racist stereotypes from mainstream media, right? So each one of these platforms, you know, it's both engineering and these social norms that Anne's talking about, you know, that that interact in these really interesting and unpredictable ways a lot of times. Um, it's really interesting. Um, in my background, the way I think about literacies is really focusing on literacy practices, so the ways that we socially engage 
right, with our meaning making with each other. And so what I'm hearing us talk about in terms of uh, these socio-emotional literacies and trust is really this other part of it that I hadn't spent much as much time thinking about and this idea of awareness um, that I think it was Janelle that you brought up. And then this idea of practice taking up particular lenses, like critical lenses, um, and seeing things through through um, that kind of criticality. Um, and so that's that's an interesting um, new lens for me um, that I'm taking it back, uh, taking from this so far. Um, and and so I, I am. I want to transition to another question around um, around trust. But if uh, wondering if anyone has any other um, comments to on that on that idea about what it means to be literate um, in these social spaces that are also digital and networked. Could I just quick say one thing about awareness? I, I love to bookmark that. I think um, I think of the work that um, the Media Literacies Project that was started by Henry Jenkins and Aaron Riley, and and then they they put together a curriculum with um, Project um, Zero at Harvard, and perspective taking was a huge part of that. And I think I think perspective taking is you know, part of social emotional learning and part of media literacy, and that that builds trust, that builds awareness, um, which is key for efficacy in digital environments. I think, but I'm not answering your question, Anna. Sorry. <laughs> One thing we have at New Tech is we have uh, these chess cards, which is basically it gives us a lot of responsibility. And the teachers all assume that we're trustworthy until we're proven otherwise. So what we do is, mm. like, if I was one day in class, they all, they always tell us to pick up our trash and leave the room better than it looked before you came in. If I one day just threw the trash can across the room, I would get my trust card taken away, which means I couldn't do a lot of the privileges that I had with my trust card. And so then I would be proven not trustworthy, and then I would have to do something trustworthy there and it back, like stay after class one day, push in all the chairs, pick up all the trash and everything. Brilliant. That's interesting um, to think about um, in terms of the questions around safety and trust, and um, particularly in digital online um, spaces where we could, we see. Um, uh, I think Jade brought up earlier this potential anonymity. I can't even say the word um, <laughs> together. One. I know, right? <laughs> But I'm trying to think also what I'm trying to say. It's hard to do that at the same time. No, but um, so so interest. So I'm I'm wondering about this um, this idea of presuming trust um, and its role in digital um, networked connected spaces. For me, I think that specifically for this topic, since this is about um, connected learning spaces and spaces where learning happens. Um, there's a very special relationship to learning and trust and that it's something that we already trust, especially if it's in some type of formal learning environment. Um, but using digital tools or creating digital projects, um, is it is different and it's a lot different than other projects. They tend to be more visible, they tend to require a different type of engagement, um, and they allow for different types of failure that we have to allow to happen as people are learning these new skills and new literacies um, in a way that wasn't possible before. So it's inherently an, 
an act of risk taking. And um, I think you see that. Um, I've heard Jesse, and hopefully you'll, you'll talk about this briefly, um, talk about her 12 streams of learning and trying to bring this digital thing into her classroom and students not understanding the value of this as a place of knowledge production because they don't trust it because it's not the thing that they've been taught to trust. They've been taught to trust peer-reviewed journal articles. Um, I imagine possibly for Emily it might be the same for you, um, having to do all these projects that are now digital. It's different than the school you went to before. So you have to, you have to negotiate that and say, is this valid and what does this mean? Because it's a huge shift um, and a huge jump that requires an am amazing amount of trust. Yeah, if you if you want, I'll jump in here and just talk about in the in the POOC we had um, what we called knowledge streams, and I can send a link around for that. But bas basically, we were trying to get across that there are new ways of creating knowledge, um, and and ask students to choose uh, among these different kinds of knowledge streams. Like, for example, creating a Flickr account and posting photos on it. That was one of the the knowledge streams. Um, you know, creating a bibliography, bibliography using Zotero was another knowledge streams. But there was a lot of distrust um, on the part of students, on the part of community members, and on the part of faculty who were the official instructors for the class. So there was a lot of distrust on why these new methods, why do we need to reinvent the wheel when we already had perfectly good, you know, methods of creating knowledge and these were not part of it, you know. So that was definitely um, uh, part of what we struggle with in the in the online course. I think too that as um, as these tools progress and multiply, um, just like Jesse said, there are, are so many different ways to be informed, curate information, and also um, you know put out your own understanding and publish your thinking and things like that. But um, as we do this, if if we in the classroom, if we as educators don't allow our kids to experience the various platforms and understand, hey, well, with this platform, mm, it felt more like this, or, you know, that's more hipster, or that's more, that's better for this, or that's better for that, then they're never going to know which tool to use in the most oh, and that goes along with, yeah, we need to have our kids and have our learners examine media but it's just as important for them to make that too because as they're making that media they're making the choices and realizing oh so when that person made that viral video that was supposed to make me you know want to support XYZ this is what they did to make me feel that way I get it you know that that may not exactly be completely you know just the facts but there is a lot of social emotional ties to that and I think that's what our kids get when they're doing these media um, projects that um, I need to know my information but I also need to be able to present it in a way for example maybe an infographic um, maybe a Ziga maybe in a meme some way that's going to be effective and maybe short and to the point but something to get my message across but you know, in the background, I'm going to have to be informed as well because people are going to come to me and ask me where I got my information from. So I think that's really important as far as trust and taking those risks. And um, as educators, we have to let go and trust the kids more because I am far from being the expert on the apps that they can do, but it's wonderful to see when they become the experts and um, help each other out. 
Great. So our hour is nearly up. It's so surprising. It went so fast. It's been a wonderful conversation around engagement and, and trust and how those both need to play together. So we'll just get some final thoughts. Um, and we might lose Anne due to power issues. <laughs> so I'll go to you first, Anne. Um, what, what kind of final thoughts do you have to share with us? Oh, I just, I just want to underscore what I heard um, about putting students at the center and giving them agency and trusting them, um, clearing space rather than dictating how they should learn. And I think if we can trust them, that will go far in creating trusted environments for them to learn in. And with that, I think I'm going to have to bow out because I'm at about 4% yeah. <laughs> by everyone. Bye. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So we'll put our student in the center now and go to you next, Emily. <laughs> what kinds of things are you thinking about in terms of what it means to trust and engage um, with others online? I think this whole time I've kind of been thinking about um, how, what we as children, or not really children, but like people my age, like 15, mm -hmm. 20, what we put on the internet, we really don't think about it. We just think about what we're going to be doing. We don't think about what we're putting out there. Like I remember in... I don't remember what grade I was in, a couple years ago, I had to make an account, a Twitter account, for one of my projects that I was doing, and I didn't think anything about it, and I put my phone number on there, I put my email on there, I even put my address on there, and I actually had someone hack my phone, I had to get a new phone number, I had someone hack my phone, and I had them find out, like, everything personal about me, they got a hold of like all my contacts, all my pictures that were on my phone and everything. And I think what I've been thinking about is just like we don't really understand what we're putting on the internet until something bad happens to us. Interesting. Do you have any ideas about how best to learn that sort of thing other than by response? Or you have to have something bad happen? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know yeah. we, a lot of people stress it, don't put anything on the internet, don't put anything on the internet. I've learned that since I was in sixth grade, and I didn't even think anything about it until it happened to me. So I personally, I have no idea. I'm kind of like stuck on a way to like express that this is so important because it was really hard for me. I lost all my pictures. A lot of them got out on the internet. Thank God they're most, none of them were bad or anything. I just didn't think they would ever end up there. But it just it just happened to me, and it put me in a bad state of mind and everything. And I just it just you have to be in that state of mind to really realize how bad it is and everything. I just don't know how else to express it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's impossible to learn something without being engaged in it somehow, mm -hmm. right? Just being yes. told something isn't learning something for sure. Um, Jade, any final thoughts for us today? Um, I think one of the things that we're talking about a lot in this conversation is the idea of culpability and being responsible for the things that are going out there um, and the role that teachers, our moderators, our co-moderators have in making sure that people are being safe on these environments and not doing something risky like putting your phone number out there, um, which is something that seems okay. I had a website when I was 13 and had something very similar happen because it was back in the 90s before people were online. I was like, I'm going to put everything on the internet and I got to university and that was a really bad idea to have out there. Um, but these are things that we have to think about when we think about trust and tools. Um, how do we protect students from, of all ages from putting out stuff that might be dangerous to 
them? How do we put in things that are safeguards so that that doesn't happen, or if it does happen, it, it can be remedied quickly? Um, and those are the type of solutions I know that we're looking for for the DML Trust Challenge. Um, we want to see ways that people can think of to make it so that somebody doesn't have to go through that experience of having their information hacked, having their information spread online, or having somebody approach them with more knowledge than you would want them to have about you. Um, so again, if you have any solutions, I don't have them. I'm hoping that people out there do. Um, you can visit dmlcompetition.net, um, and we have $1.2 million to give away for tools that will help us hopefully solve some of the problems that we've spoken about today that we're seeing repeated um, from the social sphere into the digital sphere, which is really part of the social sphere as well. Yeah. Our, com our conversation today has also made me think about how we don't want to put things out there that it makes us personally dangerous for us, but we also want to do the same thing for others. We don't want to put things out that make life dangerous for other people or are socially violent acts on other people, right? Um, and would affect, affect others negatively. So it's that, it's an interesting, it's a, we usually only talk about the safety, the personal safety. Like don't, keep telling kids, don't put your phone number, don't put your address, but this is other about what are the messages you're sending out and what effect might it possibly have to others. Um, the, because our messages can go anywhere at this point. Very interesting. Um, Janelle, final thoughts. I think that um, a lot of times young people see social media just as that, just as being social. Um, it's something that they pick up on, just, you know, instead of a phone, I'm going to do this, um, you know, Emily's told me, well, you know, I don't really, sometimes I don't check my, check my text, so, you know, Twitter me, I'm like, what, seriously? Okay. But they look at that as a social thing, so for educators to be able to not elevate but offer a different sphere of how the social media and all of these digital tools can be used, so, for example, in an academic arena, um, it allows them to see what kind of representations are out there um, of themselves and of other people, and when they can see that these important, um, authentic, relevant, engaging topics, um, that there are people who are misrepresenting themselves or representing themselves in such a way that they're closing off open discourse, critical discourse, um, that makes them think twice about it. And I think that, yes, a lot of the work was in an academic setting, but they were topics that um, a lot of our learners became really engaged and involved in, and I think that that hopefully bubbled over into their more personal social sphere, so they can see, yeah, this is you know who I am as far as my I want you know to be able to represent myself, but I also don't want to close myself off because I am part of this wider community. Great, Jesse, final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I guess that my final thoughts would just be that we really, um, I just think we have to have these conversations and uh, about what's happening in the classroom and trust and digital citizen citizenship in the context of social justice. Because for me, they're, um, they do become sort of what Anne was saying earlier, sort of a mechanism of control um, or about, you know, kind of obedience to a kind of behavioral um, set of practices rather than um, a kind of broader movement towards, you know, democracy and justice and those um, values that I uh, think that we share. So. Great. Well, I thank each of you for pushing my thinking today. Um, and this officially wraps the third webinar of this month-long series. Um, but that, uh, that doesn't mean that the conversation has to stop. I, I hope it's, we're just pausing it and that we can continue it. Um, we encourage everyone to keep the energy going by using the Twitter hashtag DMLTrust 
and by getting involved in the ongoing conversations within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. And then you can also mark your calendars for Tuesday, July 29th, 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern for the final webinar in this series as we explore higher education as a trusted environment for learning. And I guess trusted is going to be the question there, right? <laughs> and um, last but not least, we encourage you to, to check out the recent Learner at the Center of a Networked World report by the Aspen Task Force. And I'm sure the link to that will be in on the uh, Connected Learning TV page for this um, chat today. And you can find the link. Um, yeah, so you will find the link on the webinar's archived page at www.connectedlearningtv.org. Sorry, www.connectedlearning.tv. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.